0: Well, we've come a long way in the book of Genesis. And as we uh, come now, I think, to almost the close of the book, we are looking at kind of a broad overview today of the last chapters of the book. And then next week we'll have kind of a a review and looking back over the whole book of Genesis because I think that would be helpful because we spent so long in it. look back and see the the broad themes in the book uh, next week and and focus a little bit more on uh, Jacob's prophecies about his sons and and Joseph's closing words to his brother and how that uh, introduces the next book, which is Exodus. But this morning, the thing that I think we should take away from these passages, both what we read and the other passages, other chapters to follow, is this that God is providing for and multiplying His people. And we saw elements of that in the last chapters, that there was this contrast between famine and between the food that God offered them in Egypt. There was this contrast between life and death. But I think the thing that's emphasized in this section is particularly the idea of God multiplying His people, but the related idea that in order for them to multiply, He has to provide for them. They have to have food. They're not going to multiply if they have no food, if they have no provisions, if they don't have what they need to sustain life. And so the way that God has worked up to this point is to, in a a providential series of events, to move Joseph from being a shepherd boy in Canaan to being the second in command over all of Egypt. From someone who's watching over his father's flocks to supervising the entire... Grain storage and delivery program in Egypt. In that position, having been reunited with his brothers, he has now sent for his father to come down to the land of Egypt. This is to fulfill one of God's promises much earlier in the book of Genesis. God said to Abraham, Your descendants are going to go down to Egypt. They're going to be there for a long time, and I'm going to bring them out with a mighty hand. This is the first part of the fulfillment of that promise, that God specifically, is bringing his people down to Egypt. Now, there's many times in the Old Testament where the people of Israel went down to Egypt when God said not to. For help, for strength, for escape, whatever else it might be. But this is one of, if not the only, instance in which God says, here's where I want you to go, and I'm taking you there, and I'm providing for you there, so go down there. And so... That is what is taking place here in chapter 46. Israel sets out, God appears to him. This promise that God gives to him here, that he's going to make him a great nation, go down, bring you up. The last part specifically is what is fulfilled by the end of the book of Genesis. The other part we don't see fulfilled until we start getting into Exodus and so on, right? So, the first part of it, though, that, that he's going to take them down, and the very last phrase, that Joseph is going to close your eyes, uh, we might look at that and say, well, that's kind of a discouraging thing. You're going to die. Joseph's going to be the one. But, but for, think about this for Jacob. Here's the son that he thought was dead, that he would never see again. And not only is he going to see him, but he's going to be the one who's there with him when God takes him home. That, that's sort of the picture that we have here from these first few verses of chapter 46. And then they, they, they go down to Egypt, confident that that's where God wants them to be. And then we have this long genealogy in verses 8 through 27. And it's just a recounting of Jacob's um, sons and their family lines. And it's summed up in verse 27... All the persons of the house of Jacob who came to Egypt were 70. And the ones that came down with Jacob, not including Joseph, his wife, and his two sons, that were 66. And uh, if you get into the commentaries, there's a, a, a great deal of, uh, they, they spend a lot of time on this. It's interesting that the genealogy is repeated later in Chronicles, outlining uh, Jacob's family. I'm going to skip over this for sake of time, not because it's unimportant, but because I think we're familiar with Jacob and who his sons were. The point is, God's bringing them down to Egypt. He's bringing them down 70 people. He's going to preserve those 70 people and bless them and multiply them so that when they go out from there in Exodus, they're going to be a mighty group of people in fulfillment of the promises he makes at the beginning of chapter 46. Note it, chapter 46 and verse 28 that Judah is the one that is sort of taking leadership in the family. Uh, it seems that that role has passed to him, having skipped over uh, Reuben because of his betrayal of his father, and having skipped over Simeon and Levi because of their wrath and their actions in the land of Canaan. Judah is the appointed son of Leah, who is sort of overseeing the process of the move. Notice jo- uh Jacob's words in verse 30. Let me die since I have seen your face that you are still alive. Remember what Jacob said a number of chapters earlier? He thought he was about to die. Kind of like Isaac did, right? And then God had a fair number more years both for Isaac and for Jacob. We're going to see as we get into chapter 47 that in verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of his life was 147 years. So it wasn't just he shows up, he sees Joseph, he gives him a hug, and he dies, and that's it. He sees him, and he sees his family, and he's there for 17 years. So God gives him another measure of life with his son that he thought was lost, in addition to all the years that he had had without him. And so I think what he's saying in verse 30 is this idea I'm content to die because I've been reunited with you, I've seen that you're alive, I've seen that God is with you. That's, I think, the, the attitude that he has there in verse 30. Then we have this whole thing about sheep and shepherds. And um, I was half tempted off you to bring in your prop, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll skip that for the sake of Jim and Millie and the rest of us who might have to clean in the church afterward. But, um, so, sheep and shepherds. What's the big deal about that? there's a couple of interesting things going on here. One is there's this idea of herdsmen versus grain farmers. Another important idea that we're going to see in chapter 47 is this contrast between the treatment of Jacob's family and the the way that the rest of the Egyptians are treated, which I think is foreshadowing for what's going to take place in the book of Exodus, but also just a sign of God's favor. So, on the one hand, we have this sort of tension between those who keep sheep and those who raise grain. Those who raise grain, not doing a whole lot right now, right? Because it's the time of famine. They, they, they can't, okay? Um, but, here was uh, what, jo- what Joseph prompted his family to say to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, what is it that you do? We're shepherds. Which is tied in with the request to have this land sort of off to the side for them to live and in which they can dwell and not be right next to the Egyptians because the idea of shepherds and sheep was, for whatever reason, offensive to the Egyptians. He doesn't go into the reason that it was offensive to the Egyptians, and quite frankly, it's somewhat odd that it was offensive to the Egyptians given the nature of their gods and some of their practices, but regardless of the reasons for it, God was setting it up in such a way that his people had their own little piece of land over here and he was going to look after them there so that when we come to the book of Exodus, darkness over the whole land but not in this part of Egypt. God's people are separated from the Egyptians. They're not intermarrying with the Egyptians. They're not um, hopefully participating in the Egyptians culture and worship and all of those sorts of things because of some of these events where they are set off to the side and God's providing for them in their own separate land and place to live. So, in the beginning of chapter 47, they recount uh, the words that Joseph has prompted them to say. Pharaoh uh, sees this as pleasing and says, "All right, go here. Uh, Put them in the best of the land, live in Goshen, if you know any capable men among them. Verse 6, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph comes and presents his father, Jacob, to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, how many years have you lived? Verse 8, Jacob said, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained to the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And we can talk more tonight about whether Jacob's just complaining about things or whether he's acknowledging the fact that there have been significant setbacks in his life as well, the treatment of Laban toward him and all of those sorts of things, opposition from the Canaanites, uh, but there is a sense, as we go throughout the course of Scripture, of lifespans waning and life becoming more difficult, right? Uh, we go from here to uh, Moses' words, as we understand them, in Psalm 90, where he says, 70 is a good age, maybe 80, right? Even though we know that Moses lived a good deal longer than that. But, but we go from these vast lifespans the er- in the early years, in the early book, part of the book of Genesis... To Abraham and Isaac living a really long time, Jacob living a shorter time than that, and it continues to decline. And so, uh, certainly something we can discuss more tonight. But I think Jacob is just expressing, life's been hard, and I haven't lived as long as my father's. And we we would want him to say something like, but God's been with me, but we don't see that. And so we can talk more about that tonight. But God is providing for them. And notice verse 10, which is also interesting. Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Think about the irony of this for Pharaoh. Pharaoh's in charge of the whole land of Egypt, and here this shepherd from Canaan giving him a blessing. That, that, that might seem strange given uh, all of these things, but it fits with what God had said to Abraham, right? Genesis 12, I'm going to bless your family. You, in turn, are going to be a blessing to others. They're going to be blessed... The Egyptians are blessed because Joseph is living among them. The Egyptians are blessed because the Israelites are living among them. And it's not because of them as in and of themselves, it's because God is with them. And so the reason that Egypt doesn't starve is because God's watching out for his people and God said, I'm going to put my people there. And that's a a profound thing for us to think about. In the middle part of chapter 47, we have this back and forth between Joseph and the people of the land of Egypt. And it basically goes like this. We have no money. And we have no food. What can we do? Joseph says, first of all, give up your livestock. Okay? They bring them to Joseph. It, it doesn't say this, but there's a decent likelihood their livestock are put into the oversight of Joseph's family To be guarded and kept safely and multiplied for Pharaoh's benefit, which is another interesting thing to consider. So they take their livestock to Joseph, he gives them food. The year was done, no money, no livestock, what can we do? Our bodies and our lands, buy us and our land for food, verse 19, that we may live and not die, that phrase has come up a number of times in this story of Joseph. So he buys all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, and the land became Pharaoh's. For the people, he removed them to the cities from one end of Egypt's border to the other. And the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had an allotment from Pharaoh, and they lived off the allotment which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. And then he institutes a tax. I'm going to provide seed for you, and you're going to have 80%, and 20% is going to go to Pharaoh. Verse 25, you've saved our lives, let us find Pharaoh in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. And so these are the ways in which God worked through Joseph to preserve not only Jacob's family, but also the people of the land of Egypt. There are other questions. Again, we could talk about more tonight about whether Joseph is instituting slavery, whether slavery is right and wrong, all of those sorts of things. That's not the main focus. The main focus here is, is on the preservation of life. And then we come here later, and it says, verse 27, this is the contrast. The people of Egypt are giving up all that they have to Pharaoh. Verse 28, or verse 27, Israel lived in the land of Egypt, in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Notice the contrast. The shepherds that are detestable to the Egyptians... So they're sent to live off in this little part of the land by themselves. They're multiplying. They're growing. They're increasing. The the people of Egypt are starving and giving up all that they have so that at the end of it, they are slaves to Pharaoh, giving back what really is Pharaoh's, not theirs. And so we have this contrast between the way that God works out all of these things on behalf of his people Versus the way that it's worked out on behalf of the Egyptians. Both are preserved. Both are uh, given life by means of the food that they required. But when it ends up that Joseph's family, Jacob's family, is in a much better spot by the end of this chapter than the rest of the Egyptians. Did that play a role in the attitude of the Egyptians toward them later on? Perhaps. But that's not the focus here. The focus here is on God's provision of and blessing, and multiplying of his people. Jacob is about to die, he says, in verse 29 to 31. And so he makes Joseph swear uh, that he is going to bury him, not in Egypt, but back in the land of Canaan. Verse 31, uh, there's some question about whether Israel is bowing in worship, in homage to Joseph, or just simply, he's old and he's, he's leaning on his staff, leaning on the edge of the bed in the course of his conversation with Joseph. And uh, obviously, the NASB supplies the words in worship, but um, I think in context, it is probably either a fulfillment of Joseph's dream that his father would bow before him, or simply a sign of, of sort of this imagery of, of, of jacob being old and and passing the torch to joseph you know now joseph uh... my time is coming to an end god's gonna continue to be with you keep the promises that you've made to me and then we come to the middle here in verse, chapter forty eight and this is why i think that the emphasis of this section is on the multiplying of peoples it, Joseph is told, your father is sick, chapter 48 verse one, so he takes Manasseh and Ephraim, his two sons with him. when it was told to Jacob, "Behold your son Joseph, has come to you, Israel, collected his strength, and sat up in the bed." Then Jacob said to Joseph, "God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and blessed me." And he said to me, "Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession." What's God doing right now? He's making them a company of peoples. What's he going to do in Exodus? He's going to start moving them back to the land that he said was going to be their everlasting possession. And so we see God unfolding his promises successively in all of the events of the lives of Abraham and his descendants. And so then Jacob turns to Joseph's sons and says that your sons are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are but your offspring born after them shall be yours. They shall call, be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. What he means by it is this. Joseph was over here. Jacob is going to take Joseph's two firstborn sons and give them an adoptive and equal status with the rest of the tribes in their inheritance. And in so doing, he's going to give honor to Joseph and to Joseph's family. Now, It seems that Joseph had other children after Ephraim and Manasseh, which are not named in this particular chapter, and those are going to be seen as inherited in connection with Ephraim and Manasseh, not as on their own equal status as tribes of the Israelites. And then he says... uh, he explains, verse 7, When I came from Paddan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And again, there's, there's some dispute. Why does he say, Who are these? If he already says Ephraim and Manasseh are going to inherit. Uh, one, is, one possibility is the chapter is not laid out chronologically, or an equal possibility is that it's not, a, it's not a statement of lack of knowledge, it's an opportunity for the person responding to present them. Kind of like when God says to Adam and Eve, where are you? It's not as though he didn't know where they were in the Garden of Eden. He's giving them an opportunity to come out and show themselves. Joseph says, my sons whom God has given me here, so he says, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. The eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. That should probably... Uh, Ring a bell for us. We remember this from the story of Isaac. And there's a lot of parallels in this account. The thing that's not the same is the idea of deception. We don't see the deception that Jacob perpetrated on Esau in this account. But we do see a patriarchal figure who could not see well. A greeting, a kissing, a blessing. Joseph takes them, Ephraim with his right to Israel's left. Manasseh with his left toward Israel's right. Brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. When we go through the rest of the Old Testament, you're going to hear Ephraim and Manasseh, Ephraim and Manasseh, or just Ephraim by himself. Ephraim was the younger one. He blesses them. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads, May my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Here's the fascinating thing that God's going to do with Jacob's family. Ephraim and Manasseh and the rest of these tribes are going to be the most numerous of the peoples of Israel. But God's particular favor is going to be set on Judah and his descendants. Those that one tribe, often allied with Benjamin. So Jacob, and I don't think he's trying to, to, to go around God's plan. He says, be fruitful, be multiplied. And God honors that request, that blessing that, that Jacob makes here. But the one from whom M- Messiah ultimately comes is not the one that Jacob probably expected him to be, right? It's from the line of Judah instead. And so we see Jacob's plan and God's plan and how they fit together. And we see God's plan unfolding both in connection with Jacob's plan and being a far greater thing than Jacob's plan. And so when we, when we look at a, a passage like this, the, the older serving the younger and the, uh, just the way the rest of the events of the Old Testament unfold, I think it's an amazing thing just to see How God is working in similar ways to how he has earlier in the book of Genesis, and to accomplish his purpose far beyond the expectations of those that we see here in these chapters. Joseph was a little bit upset about this. Verse 17, he grasped his father's hand to move it. Joseph said, Not so, this one is the firstborn. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know, he also will become a people, and he shall be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. He blessed them on that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Israel said, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you, and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and with my bow. Chapter 49, 1 through 27. Jacob blesses the rest of his sons. We'll look at that more next week. But I want, to see, I want us to look at the end of chapter 49 as Jacob's life draws to a close. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, chapter 49, verse 28. And this is what their father said to them when he blessed them. He blessed them, everyone with the blessing appropriate to him. Then he charged them and said to them, I'm about to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, and the cave that is in the field of Machpelah before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field from Ephraim the Hittite for a burial site. There they buried Abraham and his wife Sarah, there they buried Isaac and his wife Rebekah, and there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is in it, purchased from the sons of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Chapter 50 and verse 1, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. So these are kind of the the boundary markers of this whole section, right? God's promise to Jacob, you're going to go down, Joseph's going to close your eyes. The end of this section, he's gone down, Joseph closes his eyes. Doesn't specifically state that in chapter 50 in verse 1, but that would have been part of the, the weeping and the falling on him and kissing him and then the process of the physicians and the embalmers in verses 2 and following of chapter 50. So we look at that whole thing, and there's a bunch of different ideas in this section. And so it's it's challenging to say, what is the, the one main thing that's being emphasized? And I think one of the main things that's being emphasized, because it gets repeated a whole bunch of times, is this idea of little ones or children connected with the idea of God multiplying His people. See this in chapter 46 and verse 5. Their little ones, their wives, his father Jacob, all of them in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent... We see it in chapter 47 and verse 12. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. Chapter 48 and verse 1, he takes his two sons, maybe not technically little ones now, because uh, they're about Joseph's age, maybe a little bit older. Jacob's been in the land for 17 years now. He brings them before him. And then the idea of offspring is described in detail in verses 3 to 7 of chapter 48. And then chapter 50 and verse 8, they leave only their little ones and their flocks and herds in the land of Goshen. And then Joseph's promise says in verse 21 of chapter 50, I will provide for you and your little ones. God's provision to sustain The multiplication of his people is, I think, the emphasis of this section. God's faithfulness to Jacob is another important theme in this. God makes promises to Jacob. God keeps those promises. Jacob thinks he's lost his son. God reunites him with his son. Jacob maybe has one perspective on his life. God shows him his own faithfulness in the span of Jacob's life. There is also the other theme of the contrast between the Egyptians and the Israelites in God's treatment of them by means of Joseph. God is exalting his people, meeting their needs, multiplying and enriching them. The people of Egypt are barely hanging on, and while they live, they live with nothing left at the end of this section. It all belongs to Pharaoh. It all, None of it is theirs. They're only sort of renting the land and and borrowing things from Pharaoh by the end of chapter 47. So what then are we supposed to walk away from this from? God's provided for Jacob's family throughout the book of Genesis. And I think that Moses emphasized these things to a people who would have been preparing to go into the land of Canaan. We don't know exactly at what point in the journey... Moses composes this account of Genesis and presents it to the people, and they become familiar with the records of it. But whether it is while they're wandering in the wilderness, whether it is when they're about to go into the land of Canaan, there's going to be this question for them, is God going to provide for us? What's the other question that they have? The people of the land are too numerous for us. The spies are afraid. What does Genesis show? God can watch out for 70 people, just like he watched out for one guy who ran away from his father's house on his own, just like he worked in the lives of thousands of people in the land of Egypt. God can provide for his people, And God can multiply his people despite all of the opposition or obstacles or problems that they might face. So the first and the most important thing is, trust in your good God, right? He has chosen you, he's watching out for you, he will take care of you. But building off of that and related to that, and from our perspective today... That wasn't something that God was done doing when he got the Israelites out of Egypt and put them in the land of Canaan. The same God who provided for his people then and multiplied them then is the same God who provides for his people now and multiplies his people now. And what does that provision look like? Turn over to... uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 31 and 32. We usually read 28 through 30, but 31 and 32 are important verses as well. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God took care of your greatest need in Jesus, all the lesser needs, which to us seem like sometimes the more important things, like food and shelter and all that, he's more than capable of looking after you in those ways as well. If God has provided Jesus, you have all that you need. But how does God then meet those other needs? How does God meet those needs that are daily needs, that are ongoing needs? We've looked at this before too, but let me read for you 2 Corinthians 9, 6-15. through 15. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. In the context of the offering that Paul was gathering for those in need in Jerusalem, he said, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever." Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession. "...of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift." So we look at God's provision as being two separate things. Jesus' daily needs. In 2 Corinthians 9, Paul unites the two and says, "...because of Jesus... God, through the generosity of fellow saints, meets your daily needs, which then causes people to grow in their worship for God and spill out into thanksgiving. And so God receives glory, which takes it back to both the starting and the ending point of God's provision, who is Jesus. What about that multiplication theme that we see in connection with Jacob's family? I was joking with Kelly, and I said we were going to end the service by singing Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. And when I was uh, talking to the kids at Bethany in my class about that, um, I said, there's one level at which we could sing that song, assuming all of you are Christians. Uh, We probably shouldn't sing it with three-year-olds who aren't Christians, because what does Galatians say is the connection Between Abraham and his offspring. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. Therefore be sure that it is those, verse 7, who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. So who are Abraham's offspring? All those who believe in Jesus, the offspring of Abraham. Verses 13 and 14 say this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Well, what does that look like then? What does the, the multiplication of God's people look like? It looks like what we see in Revelations, Revelation 5, where it says, verse 9, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. If we look from Genesis to Revelation, we see the tying together and the unfolding of God's promises in a way that shows that God's purpose was not to forget His people Israel, but to mediate through them a kingdom That would also include all of those of us of Gentile descent who are descendants of Abraham in the sense that we have the same faith as Abraham. And in so doing, God multiplies the work that He is doing in the world from one family, 70 people, to the entire host that we see in the book of Revelation praising God. So was God done with provision and with multiplication toward His people when we come to the end of the book of Genesis, not for the Israelites and not for what he's unfolding in the church even today. Now, I'm not saying that the church is Israel or anything like that. I'm saying that what God was doing in and among the Israelites and what God intends yet to do through the Israelites is united with his purpose for what he's doing in the church so that collectively God's people would stand before him and praise him and glorify him for all the things that he has done. And so, again, we see the unity of God's purpose from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. The consistency of His character in loving relationship with His people, caring for them, meeting their needs, multiplying them, blessing them. And we have an opportunity to be a part of that at this point where we are standing right here and now. So what does that look like? That looks like we know someone who has needs. Spiritual, physical, the two are hardly ever separated entirely. We seek to meet those needs. We have a sense that God wants to multiply His work in the world. We participate in God's multiplication of His work through preaching the gospel the discipleship process that we talked about in Sunday school, we have an opportunity to see God work in and among us in the way that God worked in and among Jacob and his family. And when we step back and see all of those things fitting together, the only proper response is what it says in Revelation. God is worthy, God is mighty, God is wonderful, and we ought to give him glory and praise. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you, for you are worthy of our praise. Continue to teach us. Help us to reflect on the lessons that we have seen here in the book of Genesis. Help us to live for you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.